Hello, I'm Andrew Scrivani. And I'm Chef John. Welcome to the Chef John Podcast. Welcome back to the Chef John Podcast and welcome to our holiday edition. It's the holiday season, John. It sure is. I'm very holiday season-ish at the moment, which means I may or may not have had an adult beverage, <laughs> celebratory, and part medicinal probably. Wasn't that the original cough syrup? Oh, yes. It was indeed. A little shot of hooch. Are you doing any of that in the last few days or so? Oh, absolutely. You know, it is cold and flu season as well. And if you can hear it in my voice, it's still something I'm struggling through. So for all of you out there who are struggling with your upper respiratory system, I feel your pain and you can hear it in my voice, but I am here for you. I am here for all of you, chicken soup and all. I generally don't do checkups with the coworkers here, but uh, I did want to mention in case this was the first time ever tuning in to the Chef John podcast and you think, huh, does Andrew always sound like that? No, no, sometimes he sounds much worse. But anyway, hope you're feeling better. Thank you. But getting back to holiday season, yes, the drinking, the eating, the frivolity, the festivities, almost when it gets to be too much, it's over, it's New Year's. And you're eating salads, trying to figure out how you even kept all those cookies and cakes. <laughs> We're right in the middle of it. This is peak holiday season. Enjoy it while it lasts. Absolutely. And the other thing is, John, this is our last episode of the season. So we have to really savor it. Like we will savor the pumpkin pie and the Christmas goose we're going to have to savor this last episode. So it may very well be, what, two, three hours long? Yes, it's probably going to be at least that. But thank God we have one of the best producers in the business who will cut it down to a neat hour 45, probably. <laughs> Where did the season go? That's a good question. The past, I guess. Although I just watched a show on Netflix about infinity. So now I'm not quite sure if it's in the past or not. John, I have a dilemma, though. Yeah. I think we need to extend the season like at least three or four more shows. And it's because I've been watching so much television while having this cold that I have all these new shows I want to talk about. I have so many shows. Well, maybe if you're good and your voice holds up, we'll let you do like six or seven honorable mentions after your pairing today. Oh, man. I just have so many good ones. And you know what? A couple that you would really love, John. Really love. I will hope to hear about these either live or offline, but I'm glad you've been using your sick time productively. I call that research, John. That's research and development. I think you can write that off. Yeah, I absolutely can. Every streaming subscription. Hey, Mel. Mel's my accountant. Mel, just remember Netflix, Amazon, Disney+. Plus. The list goes on. I remember when you interviewed Mel and you were like, Mel, I got one question. How much is two plus two? And Mel was like, how much do we need it to be? <laughs> you were like, Mel, you're hired. Put that resume back in your briefcase. And by briefcase, I mean duffel bag. And if you think it's shtick we're doing here, my accountant's name is Mel. And that was very close to the interview questions. Yeah, probably. All right. Well, really, that's what we all discuss with our accountants, just in more how we say in the business, a little more finesse than that. But anyway, moving along. Moving along. And as always, we have to start our show by doing a little bit of housekeeping. And the greatest holiday gift you can give us this year is what, John? Well, the greatest holiday gift ever would be, of course, a nice five-star review. Right. Which, you know, is probably the most insincere thing I've said all year. Let me rephrase that. In the context of the podcast audience in the show, The Greatest Gift, go leave a review. And while you're there, you might as well give it five stars. And then we always like a little comment, a little color, a little, well, we don't care. A few words underneath your review explaining what you're doing, how's it going, any questions, comments, or concerns, except for the concern part. And then you enter that and we really appreciate it. And we would consider that more than enough of a holiday gift. Absolutely. And you know, it's also a holiday gift for the algorithm, John. 
Oh, the algorithm deserves it too. It's been so good this year. And it's free. It's free. In fact, I'm going to leave an algorithm out for Santa on a plate. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, these ratings and reviews really help the podcast. So thank you so much to everyone who's taken the time to do that this season. And we love you. And we really appreciate the time and energy you put in to leaving us those reviews. And of course, spending time with us here at the podcast. So we love your comments and suggestions. We want to continue to encourage you to interact with us on Twitter and Instagram at Chef John Pod. And finally, you can leave us a message on our website, thechefjohnpodcast.com, or leave us a voicemail, and we can feature it on a show next season. Oh, yeah. In fact, there's a really good chance you leave a voicemail, it will make it. Yeah, because if you leave one now, we're just not going to get to it today. We're not going to get to it. So thank you very much. And like I said, for all that you put into this season, we appreciate it all of you. So thank you very much. Ditto. Well, that brings us to the holiday edition of Things That Jive, Chef John Crazy. I'm so excited for this one. Well, I got to try to tone it down a little bit. It is the holidays. It's supposed to be in a festive, happy mood, which I am. But one thing that drives me crazy this time of year are the grotesquely over-decorated Christmas-themed houses. I'm good with a couple strings of lights. You want to put a plastic snowman out on the porch. Do your thing. But when you can see your house from a satellite, we've gone too far, people. When strangers are inviting their relatives to come over for some hot apple cider and a walk around the neighborhood so they can look at your house, you have too many decorations. Strangers should never want to tour your front yard ever under any circumstances. So I don't really understand this. I guess it's like you just got a new fuse box and you want to push it and see if you can blow a few circuit breakers. <laughs> I don't understand the need. Some of these look like a parking lot, like at a mall. You know how you're a mile away from the mall and you just see the glow? Like I've been to neighborhood walks where people do this kind of thing. One is near Sacramento where the in-laws lived and we, we used to go for walks once in a while, which is really the thing that drives me crazy about this. It's not so much people over-decorate and just go so over the top and to a ridiculous degree. It's that then I have to politely agree to go on a tour (laughs) and look at this place and pretend I'm enjoying it when I'd rather just stay back at the house and you could just tell me about this amazing decorations. So it's always just not something I'm into. I always wonder about the people in the house. We should definitely be checking their cellar. I have a feeling, but it just seems like they're compensating for something. Am I overthinking this? What are your thoughts? I have a thought of modifying the paradigm and here's what we're going to do. First, it's at least two to three drinks at home before the tour. Then it's a flask to bring with you on the tour. Mm. And then you will verbally berate every house that you come to that's over-decorated on the tour. I think this now becomes a holiday tradition. I know you're kidding. I hope you're kidding. But somewhere in, I'm guessing, the northern part of New Jersey, someone's actually doing that tour. It's on a bus or like a minivan. They give you like a badly made Long Island iced tea out of a plastic jug and you drive around and you just make fun of houses and scream obscenities. That would sell. Yeah, but you have to have a bullhorn. (laughs) The bullhorn. You got Frosty tied up in the basement. I know you do, you freak. I would go on that tour. I would maybe run that tour. Maybe when I retire, I'll do something like that. But anyway, no, I'm exaggerating for comic effect, but it has to be so over the top. Like, I'm fine with normal dark, right? We did that growing up. We put the tinsel and spray painted the frost on the windows. But I'm talking about, like, when you have to have an architect and a mechanical engineer figure out how to get the air blower into the floppy Santa that's fake whipping the deer on your roof to land. 
we've probably gone too far. Maybe. But a nice nativity scene for your religious folk. Yeah, nativity scene, which, by the way, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, getting us back into the hospitality industry is where they got the idea for the motel. <laughs> You're traveling around the holidays. You got to find a nice, reliable place to stay. You can't be driving around looking for a manger. I mean... So I think eventually people are like, you know what we should do? Just have a series of mangers you just could rent for the night. Oh, I see. Do not, under any circumstances, get in the pool. <laughs> it looks relatively clear, but not a good idea. Anyway, that is what drives me crazy around Christmas. And if that's the biggest thing that drives me crazy around the holidays, I'm doing pretty good. Ladies and gentlemen, bad Santa. Yes. Well said. What would a holiday edition of the Chef John podcast be without some fun food facts? I hope it's about candy canes. You know what, John? What's that? This is the last time this season that you're going to steal my thunder. Actually, you can start over if you want. Well, matter of fact, John, it is indeed about candy canes. But I have a lot to tell you about candy canes that you absolutely don't know. Which is everything. So go ahead. Legend has it, John, that candy canes were invented in 1670 when the choir master of the Cologne Cathedral commissioned candy shaped like a shepherd's crook. Allah, Jesus, was the shepherd, right? So that they could be handed out to the children attending the church so they would be quiet. Wow. That means they wouldn't be crying and they wouldn't be screaming and they wouldn't be asking for things from their mother. But it was a long, long time from that point to when the modern candy cane that we see with the stripes, that came much later, around 1900. And the hook at the end might have been developed later, even still, as a method for hanging the candies on a Christmas tree. So the candy cane has evolved, mainly because there was a German Christmas tradition to hang cookies and candy and other treats on the Christmas tree, and the hook shape made it easier. But John, I know you're a numbers guy. Big time. I know you like data. I like a few numbers. I don't know if I like data, but go ahead. Well, I'm going to give you both. Okay, perfect. Do you have any idea how many candy canes are made every year, John? Well, if I were to guess, I would say, I don't know, 1.2 billion. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Chef John is a cheater. Nailed it. He's peeking at my notes. I am. I'm sorry. I would not have guessed 1.2 billion. 1.2 billion candy canes are manufactured each year, and 90% of the candy canes that are made, are sold between the weeks between Christmas and Thanksgiving. The second week of December has the highest sales. That makes sense. What kind of psychopath is buying candy canes in July? That is very true. When it comes to candy sold in December, candy canes beat out every other non-chocolate confection. Now, nothing beats chocolate, even at Christmas. And that's not surprising because, you know, it's like chocolate, and then there's candy cane, and then there's... Uh... There's that other kind of candy cane. <laughs> There's the candy cane, but it's not a cane. It's a little drop. It's the same stuff. So of the two things, the one is more popular. Very good. Is that all the data we got? Or No, I got more. Okay. 58% of the people eat candy canes from the straight end. Do you eat it from the hook or the straight yeah, end? I go for right from the middle. <laughs> Just like a dog. 30% eat from the curved end, and that leaves the remaining 12% of people who are complete psychopaths. They break up the candy to eat it. That's crazy. That leaves you in a very small minority, John. Yes, the middle. We're really the moderates. We can go either way, toward the curve, toward the straight. And I have a feeling 
the 12% to break it up to you. I'm guessing it was one of those 12% that came up with this list. They're like, I'm going to do a little research, come up with some fun facts about candy canes. Although it's funny, totally random coincidence. I was at the store yesterday and whenever I do like a decorative kind of pastry or cookie, I always like, oh, I wish I could find sprinkles I saw years ago. They were like just white balls or they were just beautiful chartreuse flecks. Like, and you can never find the one you want. You'll go and they have like the red and the green. Anyway, I was at the store and I saw next to that section, a big old bag of what they were calling candy cane frost. And it was finely smashed candy cane that looked like a sand almost. So that's funny. Those 12%, they eat that with a spoon. Does it get more broke up than that? Nope. So this is very interesting. Now, I got a couple of questions for you. Yes. Between 1670 and 1900, what happened that suddenly stripes appear? I don't know, John. No, 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 no. It's not quite that macabre. No, I think it is. It's probably much more macabre. We've already said too much. We should probably move along. I will direct you to Wikipedia, John. <laughs> and then the second question, I just pictured not a super swift German person trying to hang a straight candy cane <laughs> on the tree and going, this is just so difficult. If I angle it across two branches, it will stay. But as soon as the kids run by the tree, so they're like, you know what? I got it. Let's do these with little hooks on the end. And you know what happens, John, when they fall off the tree, right? What's that? 12%. 12% crush them. Anyway, by hook or by crook, let me wrap this up. I need to get some granular data, as they say, some background info on this study where they just handed people candy canes and they're like, all right, you marry with the clipboard. You write down all the names of people that started on the curved end. Jimmy, you're a straight guy. <laughs> Anyone that starts on the straight end? Give them a check mark. And then we might have just a couple just insane nut jobs that start from the middle. We don't have a clipboard for that because it's not going to happen. Who would do that? Anyway, that was an insane amount of candy cane info. And I think I speak for the entire audience when I say, wow, we did not even know we needed that much. And we got it. You know what, John? What's that? The control room just spoke in my ear. They're just confirming that Chef John is right again. About what? The fact that the red stripes appear on the candy cane are indeed very macabre. They are indeed indicative of bloodshed. And they represent the blood that Jesus Christ shed for our sins, John. Jesus Christ, I was right. You were right. So there it is. And thank you to the control room because I can always count on you to make me look foolish. Yes. And you know what? I've always been very good at completely guessing at historical uh, is it sea changes where things have just shifted. And we're like, why? And it'll be like, where's Chef John? He'll guess. He got it once. Had to do with candy canes. Nobody cared, but still. All right, John. This is it. This is the last one of the year. It is the holiday movie or TV episode edition of Pairings. Our favorite segment here at the Chef John Podcast. I'm super excited about this one because we're not confined to like what we're watching now, John. We're confined to what we want to watch over the holidays, what's special to us at the holidays. So I'm going to step back and I'm going to let you go first because I want to bring up the rear with mine. All right. Well, very good. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. I do not watch any holiday content during the holidays. I'll do National Lampoon Christmas Vacation, like in the middle of summer, totally appropriate. But I want the complete escapism of a non 
holiday. I don't want any religious symbolism. I don't want any goodwill towards men. I don't want any gifts being given. I stay the heck away from the Hallmark channels and all those kind of platforms. I go with total escapism. And I think my pick here is going to surprise a lot of people, including you probably. But there is an Andrew tie-in to this one, a very strong one. All right. My show is called Glow Up, a BBC-produced television show, I believe. I'm able to watch it on Netflix. And believe it or not, it is a makeup artist, which they call MUAs. So imagine British baking show only with makeup, and this is the show, pretty much. Now you think, I didn't know you were interested in makeup, Chef John. I'm not per se, but it is so fascinating to watch someone work in that kind of a medium where... You have no experience, certainly, or any sort of vested interest in any other party. It's just something I watched and you're fascinated by how they do these challenges. Like they had to pick their favorite artist and then do a makeup look on a model that reflected that. So really kind of fun challenges like that. And then it gets kind of tense at the end. The two worst performing contestants in that episode have to do like a quick sudden death face off, but they do it on identical twins. Wow. Yeah. So it'll be like, all right, you have seven minutes, smoky eye, go. <laughs> and then the two hosts, which are a reason to watch just that, Val Garland and Dominic Skinner, they judge and they send somebody home. And it's just like British Baking Show. Everyone's very polite and sincere. And it's a feel-good show. And some shows you watch because they strike a chord. Some shows you watch because your wife was watching them and you happen to be in the room. And you're like, huh, it's kind of interesting. So I'll give Michelle full credit for this one. And I'm going to pair this with pancakes. Okay. Because, funny story, when I was a young kid, my first sort of social experiment coming out of my extremely sheltered, introverted lifestyle was working on the school plays, which they let kids do from really even young grade school. You could help on like the sets and the stage crew, you know, bringing stuff on and off the stage. And so getting up to junior high, high school, that was always my dream to be in the show, graduate from stagehand and go for to something more serious, eventually in the show. And I eventually was able to do that. But one of the things I used to hear as a young kid was the older kids that were going to do the show going in for pancake makeup. <laughs> it always sounded so delicious. I did not make that connection until just now. And I had this assumption that it was involving pancakes. <laughs> and they used either pancake batter for them. It just sounded very cool. And whatever it was, I wanted to have pancake makeup on at some point. Come to find out, nothing to do with pancakes. It's just like a powder that's in a tin that looks like a frying pan. And it just was a nickname. But anyway, I did get to wear pancake makeup when I got older. Our high school was known for its productions. And we did sound and music and fiddle around the roof and Oklahoma and all the great productions. But whenever I hear or think about like a professional makeup artist, like making someone up for a shoot or a show, I always think of that young wannabe Chef John thespian fantasizing about, what the heck is pancake makeup? I can't wait to get some pancake makeup. I was like, do they do like a pancake dinner and then you get the makeup? <laughs> but anyway, so I'm going to sit in front of Glow Up watching complete random, super creative strangers battle it out by making people's faces up while eating a nice plate of pancakes, a very TV-friendly thing to eat. No forks and knives for that one, just a fork and you hold the plate with the other hand, you're good to go. And what I thought about you, the tie-in, we've never chatted about have you ever delved into the beauty, fashion, glamour photography world, and have you worked with any of these super fun, creative, highly strong makeup artists? 
in my photography career, I have not really worked with that many models. So I haven't worked with that much HMU, as we in the business say, hair and makeup. Ooh. But on film sets, I have. There's always a makeup artist on set, but I've never been in a production that had elaborate makeup. It was always just standard beauty makeup or stage makeup. I do know someone, a former student of mine, who does horror makeup for films and TV. And that's a really interesting skill. Yeah, they would love this show because they did a bunch of episodes with like prosthetics and just amazing how, same with like a culinary challenge. There's also a cocktail drink masters on Netflix, a competition show mixing super creative drinks. It's always fascinating to me whether it's food or any kind of other medium, like people given the exact same tasks, same tools, same everything, how completely different things can go and come out. So it's a fun show. Again, I have no real interest in makeup in and of itself, but the makeup made for a great competition show and a creative expression and, you know, good with pancakes. You know, the enduring vision I'm going to have of your pairings here, John, is of a cute little baby chef, John, adorably thinking that there were some pancakes to be had and was just slightly out of reach. The nose pressed up against the glass, baby chef John with a pocket full of cayenne pepper, just longing for those pancakes. That will be the enduring image for me, John. And that's my favorite new euphemism. He got a pocket full of cayenne. Pocket full of cayenne, baby. Well, John, mine is also not a holiday film. It's actually not even a film. Around the holidays, particularly in Italian-American families, you can always find Godfather trilogy playing somewhere in the home around the football and some other things. I remember even from the time I was a teenager, there was always channels around the holidays that would play the Godfather trilogy and you can't help but get sucked in. I'm not all that appreciative of the depiction of Italian-Americans as mobsters because it was definitely something that growing up in New York obviously came up quite often with people who did not know. But the Godfather movies are brilliant. They were filmed in and around New York, even on Staten Island where I grew up. So that is something that is near and dear. And it's something I always remember and in some ways look forward to because I don't really watch it any other time. And... What I want to pair it with is also sort of taking me back to my grandparents' home in Staten Island growing up at Christmas time was my aunt, her real name was Rosemary, but they called her Chicky. Of course, everyone had an Aunt Chicky. And Aunt Chicky made the absolute most delicious fruta de mar, which is seafood salad, and she would bring it every year. And it was so good. I've had a hard time trying to figure out how to recreate it. I've been able to reverse engineer quite a lot of the recipes I grew up around and gotten them pretty damn close. But this one, I can't get close to it. And it was so good. And you know what? Maybe, John, like we've talked about before in the past here on the Chef John podcast about how a memory of something is tainted by the experience of something and you can't ever really connect the two things again. Yeah, that environment you can't recreate in a recipe. Right. There's something about that fruta de mar that I order it wherever I go out to restaurants. I made it myself. I've had it in other places. It's never the same. It's always good, but it's never the same. And one other thing right along those same lines to embellish that smell is such a huge amount of taste. Yeah. And there was no place that you would ever be able to recreate what that kitchen, that dining room smelled like during the holidays. No. Whether it's a combination of cologne and candles and baked things and cookies and simmering stews or soups and sauces. I think it's just that amalgamation of sensory input that gets you to that place. Like, you know, the crepes tasted better in Paris 
maybe it was that little waft of cigarette smoke. <laughs> That's all part of the experience. Totally. And people never compute that when they're like, wait, it's just flour, eggs, and milk. Why doesn't it taste the same as in Paris? So anyway, I totally get what you're saying. Yep. And, you know, with the holiday too, I know I spoke about this last year in the Christmas episode about the Feast of the Seven Fishes and the Fruta de Mar was always part of that. So I'm a little nostalgic about these things and I think pairings uh, kind of fit the bill tonight. But John, I cannot let pairings go yet. I'm just not ready. So I have a few honorable mentions for the season because there are so many shows now that I want to talk about. A couple that I think speak to you, John. Yes. And you might have watched them already because I know you're a big fan of the Masterpiece Mysteries and the British TV. I watched a show called Annika, which I think is fantastic. It's on PBS. Okay. It's a Masterpiece Mystery about a marine homicide unit. And you'll recognize a lot of the actors in it. And it's set in Glasgow. And nobody does sarcasm better than Scottish actors. Agreed. It's so great because you come into these shows and you hear them talk and you're like, oh, do they really mean that? And then you're like, oh, they're sarcastic. Yes, they're Scottish. I understand now. That's one. And there's another masterpiece mystery that I watched that's on both Amazon Prime and PBS called Endeavor. Now, I don't know if you know Endeavor, but the thing that got me into it was the set designs are so beautiful. They're set in the mid-50s through the early 70s, and the set designs are so good. And then the actual the mysteries are great, and the actors are fun. It's very Sherlock Holmesian in a way. So that's another one that you might like. And then there are two others, John. Tulsa King which is a Paramount Plus show that features Stallone playing a mobster, finally, for the first time in his life. Isn't his name on the show Manfredi? Yes, his name is Manfredi. That is correct. Folks out there don't know, that's my wife's maiden name, Manfredi, Michelle Manfredi. I heard about that one because of that tie-in. And the last one, which of course I need to do a full wrap-up on because of so much science fiction that I brought to the show over the past year. You all knew that my favorite author is William Gibson. And I talked about possibly having a dinner with him. And I have the jacket that was from the book and the whole thing, right? Well, they finally turned a book of his into a television series. And it's called The Peripheral. And it's on Amazon Prime. I saw the preview. I almost got into that. It is completely and utterly brilliant. Oh, okay. I'm going to watch that next time. It's so good. I have to say that even if you're not like a big sci-fi person, you will enjoy it. And that's virtual reality, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can call it that for starters. It stars a young woman named Chloe Grace Moretz that you might remember as a child actor in the Kick-Ass series. So those are my honorable mentions for the year. Annika, Endeavor, Tulsa King, and The Peripheral. And if I forget, you know what I'm going to do? Listen to the podcast. You can always listen to the podcast. Well, I'm going to do one quick extra bonus recommendation for you. Okay. Because it's literally the opposite of holiday viewing. And then I'll make a horrible admission as we end the segment. So that should hold them. It's on Netflix. It's called Black Butterflies. It is the most fascinating profile of a serial killer I've ever seen in any show, movie, TV. I can't say anything without giving everything away, but it's an elderly man that's being interviewed by a investigative reporter. And the story that unfolds is beyond fascinating and it is deep and it's campy and it's shot with great flashbacks to like the seventies. You know, we talked about certain shows here, like 
Stranger Things, they just get it so right on the nose when it comes to the clothing and the effects and the lighting. So I think you'll love it. It was really, twist is not the right word. There's always going to be a twist in a show like that, but lots of things you don't see coming and then you still can't believe they came. <laughs> so definitely bloody, definitely gory, but in sort of a over the top, what's the famous old horror director? George Romero. Yes. Sort of that kind of gore where it's like, Gore, but like not enough. To, it doesn't scare you that much because it's like a certain type of theatrical gore. But anyway, check it out called Black Butterflies or uh, is it Papillon Noir? I think they actually translated this one correct, which, as you know, is one of my things that used to drive me crazy. Yes, of course. When there's like three words in a title and two of them aren't correct with the actual native language. And you're like, why did they change the name from Black? No, we're not going to go there again. And then my horrible admission. Yes. Never seen any of the Godfather movies all the way through in one viewing. Absolutely have seen them all five to seven minutes at a time because they're on all the time on every channel at certain times of year. But never if I sat down and like, oh, good, the Godfather's coming on. And then I sat there for two hours and watched or three hours, whatever it is, and watched it start to finish and gone, oh, okay, interesting. It's always just been in parts and segments because it's not something I saw in a theater. Right. It's only been cable TV with commercials. And now that it's on streaming, I've lost interest, basically, because I've seen every scene. And there's a great diatribe in Family Guy, which I'm not the biggest fan of, but I'll catch it surfing once in a while. And he does this thing where it goes from stupid to like this really serious, completely brilliant breakdown of the problem he has with the Godfather. And his family loves it. And they're just beside themselves. He doesn't like it. Anyway, I don't know why I thought of that. But when I was listening to him go off, I was like, you know what? That's kind of what I think about this. So <laughs> if anyone's curious, Google Family Guy disses the Godfather. And that's how I feel. All right. That concludes pairings. Very good. So not holiday-ish, but I guess that was the point. Kind of. All right. I have a special top five for our holiday edition, and it is one just reeking of nostalgia. The top five Christmas gifts I ever received. Love it. And I'm going to go first. Please. At number five, I took my daughter, Julia, to Paris, which, of course, was a gift to myself. She was a little girl, and our niece was studying in Paris. And I decided that I was going to visit her, but I was going to take my six-year-old with me. And watching a child experience Paris at that age was magic. And it was something that I'll always remember. And I was so happy that I did it. And it was definitely one of the best Christmas gifts I ever received, even though I was the one who gave it to myself. That brings me to number four, my first cassette player and a copy of Wings at the Speed of Sound. Now, if that doesn't date me, I don't know what will, but it was such a rush to get this new piece of technology, which was just like one of those box tape recorders with a speaker on it. And then my uncle, who was a musician and he was into the Beatles, and at that time, the Beatles had already broken up, so Paul McCartney was in Wings. So he gave me the cassette tape of the Wings album, and I must have listened to it a thousand times. I still know all the words to all those songs, but that was something that really stuck out to me and as a gift that sort of really resonated as a kid, and it was something that I'll never forget. And that brings me to number three, John, the Intellivision arcade gaming system. Now, why is this one so special? Because everyone else had Atari. And this was supposed to be the one that was the next evolution of the cassette gaming system. And it actually had better sports games. So I really enjoyed this. And it was fun, too, because we'd go to one friend's house to play Atari. Then we go to my house to play in television. 
But those were the two major gaming systems back in the early 80s. I don't even know if you remember that. I don't. We were an Atari family. Yeah. So this one, the controllers had a little disc on it. And that's how you would control whatever was on the screen. And because it wasn't a joystick, it was a little bit more responsive so that the sports games were a little bit easier to play. So there was a football game and a baseball game. And we really had a lot of fun with those. And it was just such a thrill to have something that cutting edge. It was fun. And that brings me to number two, John. I want to give you a little context on this one. So my dad told us he was giving us this gift, but we had to go pick it up. And it was a couple of days after Christmas. And my brother and I were completely haunting my father to go pick up this gift. And it was a VCR. And it was the first VCR we had. So it was just as the technology had switched from Betamax to VCR. And we were getting this VCR machine. And we were kids. So we would just call it the machine. Dad, when are we going to go pick up the machine? Dad, when are we going to pick up the machine? Dad, when are we going to pick up the machine? So finally... (laughs) It's a couple of days after Christmas, and now there's a snowstorm. And my dad got so sick of hearing us that he literally put us in the car in a snowstorm, drove us across the island to pick up this VCR from this guy that he bought it from. I have a feeling it probably fell off the truck. But because it became such a big deal and because of the snowstorm and the whole us breaking my father's shoes for days and days and days to get this machine. And then, of course, we get it back home. And the only movie we had was an officer and a gentleman. (laughs) Oh, very nice. Perfect for kids. We must have watched that movie 50 times. It was so funny. We're like eight and 10 watching this Richard Gere movie. It was ridiculous. This is like 1982, something like that. But it was great. And it was fun. And it was such a memorable Christmas that year for a lot of reasons. Officer and a gentleman? What year did that come out? I don't know, but I'm sure our little birdie will tell us before I'm done with my list. And then who were the stars of that? I forget. Richard Gere and Deborah Winger and Louis Gossett Jr. He played the drill sergeant. Don't you eyeball me, Mayo. (laughs) Wow. Well, that is quite. Well, I'm not done. I got one more. Oh, my God. Wow. That seemed like such a climax of a list. How does it get better than The Machine? It does, actually. And just so we're clear, 1982 was an officer and a gentleman. All right. Number one. The most epic of Christmases. It was Christmas Eve and we went to bed and there was nothing under the tree, you know, because Santa Claus hadn't come yet. And I guess this has got to be around 1976, something like that. We were little. And the next morning we came down and there was still no Christmas gifts under the tree. The entire living room couch was wrapped. So we went down and we're like, Okay, what's happening here? My parents were like, I don't know. I guess Santa didn't have time to wrap all your gifts. So he wrapped the couch and we went over, we tore open the couch and all our gifts are just on the couch. Now, of course, later on, I learned that that's exactly what happened. My father had gotten home very late that night from work. So they just put everything on top of the couch. They wrapped the couch up and it was so memorable. My brother and I talk about it all the time. I think my brother recreated it for his kids one year. And that was the greatest Christmas morning of all time. That's a genius idea, first of all. Yeah, I can imagine coming down the stairs. Yeah, I, what? <laughs> I got a couch. I got a couch. <laughs> That's what I always wanted. I always wanted a couch. Uh, well, great list. I've never been to Paris, so I am so jealous of Julia. But I can imagine exactly how awesome that was. And yes, technically, that was all you uh, as far as a gift. But I'm sure she has just as fond memories of that. And then, yeah, your first cassette player, any kind of 
music technology where you have the power in your hand to stop <laughs> and start content. It was amazing. It's like when you got to use the remote and the TV first had a remote, your parents wouldn't send you across the room to change the channel because they had their feet up. So yeah, I don't know if we had a cassette. I remember we did have, well, they weren't even called boom boxes back then, but just a small square. I think there was like two small speakers on either side and the entire rest of the body was just enough for a cassette tape. And I couldn't even begin to tell you what the first cassette we listened to was. But anyway, I remember those discoveries of technology and you just could not believe you could rewind it or you could go to a certain spot in a song. Then we discovered, oh, the record button that will tape right over the tape. <laughs> right. In television, like I said, we were Atari, didn't know in television, but Pong was at the table tennis. Mm -hmm. It was pretty good back in the day. My sister and I used to play for hours. And then, yeah, a VCR. I think we had VCRs. I don't remember them being any kind of great special thing. I might be fuzzy on the timeline, but I'm going to have to go back and look to see when HBO and premium cable first premiered versus the mass availability of the VCR. Because I'm remembering we were one of the first kids on our block to have like cable TV. And then I'm thinking we got VCR and then you could tape things. So I think that just having the cable was enough of a like, oh, my God, we're special. We get to watch all these shows no one else can watch. And then the VCR came versus I think some families just had the regular three channels on the TV like you got back then, plus public broadcasting. And then if you had the VCR, someone would give you a movie or you could watch something else, someone taped. Rural communities had cable television before cities because the broadcast didn't reach certain places and whatever. But HBO is around since the early 70s. So HBO had been around quite a while. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we had HBO first and then it was a VCR. I always remember that as being more significant, more profound of a change. You know, I used to remember going to my grandparents in Florida and they had cable. So I was able to watch things like ESPN and HBO and WHT and like these kind of channels that I couldn't get in New York because we still only had broadcast. I'm chuckling here. I already covered number one. So I'm going to go back to number two and wrap this up. But when I saw your nickname for the VCR was The Machine, <laughs> I will never forget this random sports highlight. You remember the relief pitcher and complete lunatic that was Brian Wilson, closer for the San Francisco Giants? Yes. Had the full psycho act, but probably wasn't an act. So he's getting interviewed from his condo one time. You know, it's an off day. They do the interview with the person for the cable network. And totally nondescript, like, oh, you guys have been doing this, that, and how, how do you feel about this? How do you feel? And all of a sudden, in the back of his condo, a dude walks out in full bondage gear with the chaps... <laughs> <laughs> the G-string, the leather cap. It's only like two seconds, but he just walks 20 feet behind him in another room and like through the scene. And then Brian Wilson never misses a beat. And so the reporter's like, hey, who was that? And he's like, it told that pain. He's like, the machine. <laughs> and then he kept going on with his answer. And the reporter didn't follow up. And that was it. Come to find out, it was a practical joke he was playing on the network. It was actually Pat Burrell. Oh, really? Yeah. In the bondage gear. That's great. Who can forget his role as the machine? That's amazing. But it was the best stroll. Like it was like someone was lost in your apartment. So he was like a slow walk. But right in the middle of a completely mundane question about his slider. Anyway, so the machine, I just chuckled because I was like, oh, I remember that machine appearance. That's something you would have taped back in the day and give it to your friend at work. Okay. I cannot wait to get into my top five Christmas gifts I ever received. Beginning with number five. That giant, humongous set of plastic army men. <laughs> oh, man, I remember that Christmas. Because, you know, when you're younger, you get a couple, you get a few. 
Your mom might pick up a package at the drugstore. It might have five or six pieces in it. Maybe one or two. You get them out of a box of cereal or something. Cracker Jacks. Kids got war tokens with their snacks back then, kids. <laughs> we were a tougher breed. Anyway, I always wanted, because you see the commercials on the back of comic books back in the day, there was always an ad for this super sweet, gigantic set. And it was actually the Union and Confederate armies. So it was blue and gray. And I just fantasized about the set. And then one Christmas, there it was. 40 riflemen and 20 cannons, like a full cavalry. And I would just set up these elaborate battle scenes. Half the living room floor would be staged. And that was just like to go from just a couple using your imagination to having the full, not one, but two armies with artillery. It was just sweet. Which brings us to number four. Similar theme, we all had crayons as kids. Those little packs, not bad. But then there was that Christmas, you got the giant box of crayons. <laughs> and I forget how many was in there. They used to have the number on the box. 64. 64. And that changed everything. That changed the game. You could color your coloring books and you just, you couldn't even use all the colors. You'd run out of things to color in. That was always a momentous occasion as a kid when he finally graduated to the giant, which I'm sure we didn't have a lot of money. So it was kind of probably a big expenditure to get the giant box. But anyway, we finally scored and I always thought of myself as a little bit of an artistic kid. So I was very much psyched with the crayons, which brings us to number three, detective crime solving kit, complete with fingerprint powder. <laughs> oh man, I wanted to be a detective when I was a kid for a certain period of time. Loved all the comic books about detectives and the Hardy Boys. Oh my God, the Hardy Boys. I read all the Hardy Boys. And one Christmas, I got a crime solver, super sleuth, forget what it was called, detective kit. And the fingerprint powder totally worked. It came with the clear tape. You dust and you tape and then you put it on the note card and you put the place and the time. And anyway, I proved beyond any doubt that my mom, dad, and sister at some point had been in the house. <laughs> I had them dead to rights. I used to dust my bedroom doorknob to see if my sister had touched it so I could prove. And then she's like, you're an idiot. So what? I go in and out of your room all the time. So uh, anyway, it was probably more fun in theory than in practice having this sleuth kit. And of course, the magnifying glass. How does anyone solve a crime without a magnifying glass? I would just walk around with this, seeing things very slightly nominally closer. That really helped me come up with a lot of clues. Like, where did all those army men go? CSI Finger Lakes. CSI Shortsville. Which brings us to even more fun at number two. The Evil Knievel Stunt Cycle. Whoa. Oh, my God. If you're not familiar, it was a little toy motorcycle with a little Barbie doll size Evil Knievel. I guess Ken size would be more accurate. None of them had genitalia. That was the common denominator. <laughs> and of course, we all had to check. Came with the little action figure, the stunt cycle. And then it sat on a platform. And the back wheel would lock into this gear. And you'd wind it up. And you'd get that wheel going 8 million revolutions a second. And then you'd hit the release. And the thing would shoot off of this ramp, this ejector. And you would try to jump things. Just like in real life, though. The jump was never successful. Nope. And evil broke every bone in his body. 
Evil in real life broke every bone. He never landed on two wheels, maybe a couple times. But all his stupidly, insanely hard, like we're gonna jump over 40 buses. Like physically, that's not possible, you know, with the weight of your motorcycle. Like we're doing it anyway. Someone wind up that wheel. So we would set up these elaborate, like we're gonna go from the kitchen table to the washing machine. And we would just end up breaking things in the house because there was no rhyme or reason to where the thing would shoot off of. It never went where you thought it would go. And it was always tragic. So very true to life. Yes. So is that art imitating life and life in terror? It's the same time. And then the ultimate Christmas gift at number one, a BB gun. Wow. I know it's cliche. I know it was in that movie. Tell a story about Christmas. What is it? A Christmas story. Okay. Christmas story. That's a good name. And that was me. 13, 14 years old. Who knows? Just dream, beg, pleaded, wrote fake letters to Santa Claus. <laughs> And I finally got the BB gun and I had the power of life and death in my hands in the context of little Tweety birds in the backyard. How many fingers I got up? I don't know. So you did shoot your eye out. As Mel would say, how many fingers you want to have up? So I went out and 98% of the time it was just target shooting, you know, cans, bottles, pretend to try to shoot a squirrel, never got one. But I think I did at some point murder a tiny little Tweety bird. Just because it was a big hunting community and there I was a big man. And I will go hunting also. I can't go with my uncles, but I certainly could go out in the backwoods here with my BB gun and look for some unsuspecting tiny little Tweety bird. But anyway, that was my hunting career. I wasn't a super big hunter growing up. Is that a confession or? That is more of a cry for help. <laughs> I've admitted this publicly before. Okay, good. I used to hunt and trap and kill animals on a regular basis as a young kid, mostly just for money. But the BB gun was quite a score if you grew up where I grew up, rural sort of area of central upstate New York, western New York, it was a rite of passage. What year would you get your BB gun? Because a couple of years after that, you would get a 22, and then you would get a maybe a 10-gauge shotgun or go right up to the 12-gauge shotgun. Or sorry, 20-gauge, which is a smaller one, than a 12-gauge. But anyway, BB gun at number one was probably my top Christmas gift as far as just coming downstairs going, oh my God, it's a weapon. <laughs> So Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas. John, your list is so indicative of a child of the 70s. Everything on this list, I think I probably had also at one point as a child, except, well, I did have the BB gun, but it wasn't like the one you had. Mine was more like a handgun because, you know, like I did live in the city, you know, after all. But your plastic army men, I had the World War II versions, you know, with mortars and guys with bayonets. Those were fun. The crayons, the crayons were kind of more my brother's thing. He was more the artistic one growing up. Oddly enough, we did a role reversal as we got older. But I used to love to get the big box of crayons and I used to melt the wax into bottle caps for a street game we used to play in the city called Skelly. I don't know if you know this game. No, I do not. We would draw a board on the ground with chalk. And it was little boxes. And some playgrounds actually had a skelly board painted onto the blacktop. And you would take the crayons, you'd break off a piece of it or multiple pieces if you were really creative. And you use a lighter and melt it and it would then harden. And then you could shoot the bottle caps with your fingers in this board. So if you are ever curious about what that game was, it's called Skelly or Scully. Depends on where you grew up. And I'm sure if you Wikipedia, it, you will see it. But it was a really fun game. And my brother did not like when I melted his crayons. As far as the detective solving kit with fingerprint powder, John, if you had grown up in my house, you would have probably become a detective. Three generations of policemen, aunts, uncles, cousins, everybody imaginable 
was a cop, you would have fit right in and you probably could have solved some crimes with the family. So that's one I did not have because I think I knew from a very young age, I did not want to be a policeman. The evil Knievel stunt cycle, you described it perfectly. We had the same one and you would wind it up to extraordinary tautness and it would just take off in any direction and crash into everything imaginable. It was amazing. It was a great toy and it was so much fun. And as far as your number one, John, I now will never watch A Christmas Story again without imagining you as little Ralphie. That was me. Although I never did the tongue on the pole trick. I was always the one that got the other kids to do the tongue on the pole trick. And to this day, I still say that lamp, that was a good looking lamp. Yeah, very good looking lamp. John, we're coming down the end here. I'm starting to feel it. I'm starting to feel a little nostalgic, a little sad. It's almost the end of the show and almost the end of the season. You'll be fine. But we are going to take one last peek behind the curtain. For those of you who are new to the Chef John podcast, a peek behind the curtain is where John and I talk about our experiences of shooting food, the challenges, the failures, the triumphs, all the things we've done as visual food artists over the years. So, John, take us behind the curtain. Well, one little peek behind the curtain this time of year as I deal with the viewers of the show, who I always appreciate. And I know we have a big overlap here with the podcast audience, so thank you. But around this time, I spend a considerable, how do you say that? considerable amount of time and effort trying to give people bad advice about what kitchen things they should get as gift ideas for their loved ones. I get so many comments and questions because people assume if you're in the business, you know all the products, you can rate them just off the top of your head. I know nothing about any equipment. It's either sent to me for free or Michelle orders it, or it's the first one I see on the shelf at Bed Bath & Beyond. I need a little whatever it is. So I never really give this stuff a lot of thought myself. I'm the one that should be asking other people like, hey, what's a good strainer? But I always feel obligated to at least phone something in. So I always tell people like, well, go in your price range, do some searches, Amazon, whatever the best reviewed in your price range, that's usually a good bet. But I always feel like I'm literally, like I just said, phoning it in because I really should have a better knowledge, but I don't. So I always find that very challenging. I always feel like I'm disappointing everyone who asks, what's your top list of must-haves in the kitchen? It's like, I don't know. Can't you just Google that? There's got to be like 40 lists out there. Why would you trust me? I don't know anything. (laughs) And again, I'm working this back into the peek behind the curtain metaphor because you don't necessarily want to expose your lack of knowledge in a certain food-related area. Our default setting is, oh, let me explain that. Yeah, you're the expert. Yeah, you go into teacher mode like, you know, I just got to stay one lesson ahead of the kids. So anyway, that's what I will admit this year. If you peek behind the curtain, it's me trying to answer someone's email about what do I think about this spatula versus that spatula? I'm like, um, I would go with the spatula. Is there really that big of a difference? But I can't really give that kind of a smart ass answer. So I'll be like, you know what? I'd go with a X94. That looks like a fine piece oh, of equipment. yeah. It's the flapjack winner. And all these years I've been using the Acme spatula like some kind of idiot anyway people next year don't ask any questions about equipment or culinary related gifts for the holidays i have no clue when in doubt and i've said this for years kitchen related culinary related gift get someone a nice big 20 dollar hunk of parmesan can't lose with that that's a big piece of cheese and any person that loves food well make sure they can eat cheese by the way but anyone that cooks will absolutely adore a big old hunk of parmesan because people don't go and buy a big giant hunk, but they buy a little here and there. But that's how you spoil someone. Give them a big hunk of Parmesan or some super expensive chocolate, things that people don't buy from themselves. 
Now that's a nice food gift. There's your advice. Well, there it is. John spitting knowledge on gift giving. I take it all back. This peek behind the curtain was a total fraud. No, that's <laughs> the only advice I have. I understand. I get asked about cameras all the time and I don't know enough about all the cameras. So I usually just stay with the brands or the models that I know. I understand the feeling because people ask me like I work at B&H Photo and it's like, uh, no, people, I do not. But I have one, John. I have a peek behind the curtain, and it's actually related to Christmas week. Christmas week 2003, to be precise. I had done a few photo assignments for the New York Times during the year in 2002, but I hadn't done any photo shoots where I cooked the food, styled the food, and then photographed it, which was what ultimately I became known for doing, especially at the beginning of my career. Before I worked with food stylists and before I worked with propers, I used to do it all on my own. And it was during that week where I got my first opportunity to do that. So it was a couple of days before Christmas. The deadline was going to be before New Year's. And the assignment was to shoot congee. Now, you know what congee is. It's a rice porridge, not particularly nice looking. And it was going to be in a story about New Year's hangovers. So this is a good hangover remedy. I was staying at my mom's at the time and mom had a wood table and I found some nice Asian bowls to shoot it in and I made the congee and I poured it in the bowl and I set it up on this brown table, daylight coming through the window and I was able to get some steam photographed in the shot and I sent it in, they loved it and then from that point on, they kept asking me to do shoots where I would cook the food. So the launch of my career as I knew it happened Christmas week, 2003, and it turned into a 20 year career from there. So I got very special memories about this week and what it meant for my career. And I have a vivid memory of that first assignment. And that's a little peek behind the curtain. That's a big peek behind the curtain. Thank you for sharing. Very cool. I did not know your con. I'm trying to do a pun, but I won't. <laughs> I didn't know that's how you conjugated your... Ooh, relationship with wow. the photography business. Very nice. Nicely played. What did we learn today, John? Well, we learned so many things. 98% of it was about candy canes, <laughs> which I was shocked. I think that's what I take away is the most profound thing we learned that out of all the famous Christmas candies, I mean, I can't even name them other than chocolate. Candy cane is the most popular. There's so many other options. There's too many to name. But that the candy cane was more popular than all of those, you know, candy corn. Oh, no, that's Halloween. Well, you know what I'm saying. Candy apples? That's Halloween, too, mostly. Anyway, very popular candy. We learned that. Also, we learned, which I'm sure a large portion of our audience was surprised to hear, it's really hard to hang a straight stick <laughs> on a tree. So way back then, the peak of... The German technological revolution, they're like, you know, just bend the end. They'll hang it right on the branch. So that's apparently why we hang things on trees now. Used to be candy, treats. And by the way, we've come full circle. Originally, we're supposed to be hanging edible gifts on the tree. That's how this stuff started. And then people are like, oh, these peasants with their edible gifts. Let's put glass and porcelain and gold and metal. And then that was cool. Now I think we're coming full circle where it's like, oh, plastic on the tree. I hope things pick up. And now people are putting, you know, candy corn balls and it's probably Instagram to blame. So I'm glad this has come full circle. But yes, that's how the candy cane got curved. We all learned that today. And I think we're all better for it. Uh, we also learned there is no pancake batter in pancake makeup. 
So if you're a young kid getting started in the world of drama at your school and you've heard the older kids talking about this pancake makeup you're going to be wearing, don't get too excited. It's not what you think. And then on a personal note, I'm going to finish up with this. If you ever meet Andrew in real life and you're wondering what popular pop culture influences helped shape who he is today and as far as his relationships with women, his duty, honor, family, love of country. We finally have an answer of what shaped you, what molded your whole being. And that was watching an officer and a gentleman. <laughs> How many? 80 times? 100 times? It had to be something like that. So now every time you do or say anything, I'll think, wait a minute. You remember that one scene with Richard Gere? That's where Andrew learned how to do that. Yep, that's it. So that, I think, was what I learned the most today. I had no idea how much Officer and Gentleman shaped who you are today. Absolutely. Does he have a podcast, Richard Gere? he got to have a podcast. I mean, if not, he should just come do this one with us. Yes. Well, we got room for everybody. More the merrier. Anyway, that's what we learned. We learned so much over the course of this entire season. We had so many laughs, probably too many laughs. And I think everyone will agree we learned way too much, mostly about things Andrew and I probably shouldn't have taught you. <laughs> Be that as it may, thank you for learning all you learned. Thank you for supporting the show and what we do. We will be, as usual, taking a sabbatical, a leave of absence, which can last, no one really knows. It could be a short time off or, you know, a comic can hit the earth. Who's to say? Hard to know. So that's a nice thought to leave you with on this holiday episode. But anyway, the point is, we will be taking time off before you hear these dulcet tones, as they call them in the business. But in the meantime, we hope you have a fun rest of the holidays, rest of the year, and a great and prosperous new year. I almost said proper new year, but there's no such thing. It's got to be a proper new year in England somewhere. Or it's something. definitely have a proper new year, which if you watch Glow Up, those British people, they're very proper. But anyway, we thank you for all the support this year. And have a great, great 2000. Oh my God, I can't believe I'm saying this. 2023. Wow. Is that correct? Did I do the math right? You did. That's insane. Anyway, have a great one. We want to thank you. We did thank you from the bottom of our hearts. On behalf of Andrew and I, have a great one, which means there's only one thing left to do. And that's say goodnight, Andrew. Good night, Andrew. <laughs>